Hi, I'm Nihal Al-Hadi, a contributor to CJR. The latest issue of CJR's magazine asks the question, how is journalism made? I'm a journalist and an urban planner, both service professions with an ethical obligation to the public. My interest in the confluences of journalism and urban planning brought me to the work of Chris Gilliard, whose critical engagement with the media draws from redlining, the practice of excluding certain people from access to goods or services by selectively raising prices. Gilliard's work calls out what he and Hugh Cullick refer to as digital redlining, algorithmic practices of online discrimination against Black communities. I also talked to Marcus Gilroy Ware, whose work looks at how journalism responds to the challenge of fake news and the competition for both attention and action in an unregulated online media environment. How does the truth circulate? And how is the truth even determined? I'm fascinated by Marcus's examination of the political economy of information, how social media posts and news stories organize their audiences into different groups, like communities, consumers, and trolls. In conversation together, Chris, Marcus, and I talked about journalism versus content production and how data is really employed to monetize our attention. We discussed the social inequities that are built into the foundations of digital media and journalism and how journalists might envision a new online architecture to house public information. Um, Marcus, if I could start with you, you wrote after the fact, the truth about fake news, which is about the circulation of fake news within this environment. Could you talk about that a little bit, please? Um, well, I tried to take a kind of slightly um, provocative approach to the idea of fake news, I think, um, because the book is motivated by some of the problems I found in the ways that the problems of misinformation and disinformation are, are talked about, and the rather selective way in which we talk about those problems, which is rather blind to the overall ways in which we can be misinformed by kind of cultural and ideological processes, as well as by much more narrow and specific forms of whether inadvertent or deliberate, you know, factual inaccuracy. Um, and I suppose part of that is in considering the relationship between journalism and kind of neoliberal uh, tables of value and governmentality and so forth. And the way that that question has not really been, for me, engaged with enough. So as part of that overall inquiry, one of the things I wanted to do was actually look at the journalism industry, which is an industry I've been involved in preparing graduates to enter for the last 12 or 13 years as, as an academic. And that's something I've, an industry I've worked in as well. And throughout that time, there's been a I suppose a slight disappointment because there's always been this sense of incredible potential and I really believe in the value of what great journalists do. And yet, as part of the overall perhaps cultural complacency that we have around the kind of slide into neoliberalism that has occurred in the last kind of 30 or 40 years, um, a lot of the things that we say we want journalism to do haven't really occurred in, in, in terms of um, challenging and, and trying to arrest or reverse that that slide. We started to use, at a certain point, a, a word a lot that began to trouble me, which was content. This is content, We're creating content all the time. And I felt that this is emphasizing the wrong part of what we're doing, you know, and actually journalism isn't isn't just content. Um, it, that, it may be content for somebody, 
Um, but it, that somebody for whom it, journalism is content um, is somebody who only really cares about very specific aspects of its presence and its exchange value. Neoliberalism has um, reduced journalism to being content in some way to the extent to which it now has to compete in this neoliberal way with all the other forms of content that are out there on the internet. So Chris, I want to talk to you about um, content and information and data and the ways that they are being used, if you'd like to respond to that. Yeah, so uh, I'm struck really uh, by what uh, Marcus said about content. What that leads me to think about is the ways in which uh, internet platforms or internet companies or tech companies, however you want to think about them, have uh, helped to structure and push this narrative about uh, what uh, content is or what it should be. Uh, I mean, one of the immediate examples that comes to mind is the infamous uh, pivot to video claim that eventually um, everything was going to become video and, uh, you know, companies or uh, journalism poured a lot of resources into, into following Facebook down that path. Um, which uh, proved to not be um, as Facebook predicted. What I also really want to bring up right up top is that at the same time, through the events of the past year with anti-police brutality um, protests, with this push towards inclusion and diversity and representation, the internet has worked hand in hand with this um, and and can't be taken out of this um, paradigm shift hopefully within journalism do you mean it in relation to the uh social media companies and and their sort of amplification effects that and also the ways in which you know journalism is facing a quote-unquote reckoning again right yes i mean the first thing to say is you know it's it's much as i'm uh, amongst the most vehement critics of facebook and twitter and and their uh, peers, if there are any, um, I think it's important to remember that it's not as simple as as us saying that everything they do is bad. And if we look at you know movements like the kind of you know enormous um, uh, increase in in interest and in, in, in traffic in, with Black Lives Matter as a long term movement kind of spiking in, in the summer, there we can see that there were there were effects and um, possibilities enabled by these kinds of platforms that you know, without them would have been probably more difficult. Much as I'm a critic, I think it's important to have that on the table as well, um, because we sort of have to be able to find solutions that don't ask us to give up those those forms of, you know, ability to talk to one another. I'm interested in kind of imagining what, what that looks like. If we look at Black Lives Matter in the summer, um, the, the, the technical... Um, possibilities for for how that could have been dealt with journalistically were all there but editorially time and time and time again um the 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 stories that were written the headlines that were written the kinds of ways that you know the the destruction of black lives at the hands of police um and the kind of you know outpouring of anger in, in relation to that was handled in newsrooms was um extremely problematic and um, it's not that it's necessarily hostile. It reminds me of Dr. King's white moderate, that the kind of shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute mis- misunderstanding from pe- people of ill will. 
going from what you're saying, like what I'm thinking about in response to it is like who controls which data, which information. And then this idea that once it's out there, it is uncontrollable or takes on a life of its own. But Chris, you specifically talked about the ways in which this information is employed when you're talking about digital redlining. So could you tell me a little bit more about that? So a lot of the work I do or a lot of the things I talk about are, again, uh, things like Facebook and, and and Twitter and the ways in which they are very much invested in promoting themselves as neutral companies or as somehow just the middleman uh, or uh, a mirror that reflects society. There's a lot of different um, ways that the, the sort of metaphors that they use. But one of the things that they is undoubtedly true, but that they try to get away from is that they are, they exist to promote and amplify. And they know that certain kinds of information, certain kinds of data, uh, certain kinds of uh, activities drive people to consume more. And in, for instance, in Facebook's own research, they, there's something like 64% of people who join extremist groups on Facebook have had extremist content recommended to them. Facebook has promoted this activity or this group to them. I mean, I, I, I very much agree um, with the analysis that, that Chris has, has just offered. And I think it's, it's really important to say that however much we might acknowledge some of the things happening there being, being um, useful or good, those are almost the kind of unintended consequences of us being able to find little areas of, you know, hiding places, if you like, within these platforms where, where we can still practice mutual aid and other other things like that. You know, we always talk about how it's the data, the data, the data, that these platforms want the data, but actually the commodification is even more cynical than that. It's our attention that they want, right? The data is used simply to refine and better target our, our attention. You cannot be neutral and have that be your business model because human beings pay attention according to, you know, a number of things, but they don't, they're least interested in that which is neutral as far as content is concerned. Well, I just use the word content, but you know what I mean. Um, they're much more interested in the things that make them either kind of happy in some way or distracted from the problems in their life or the things that are that they're angry about being represented in those media in some way. And really, Facebook doesn't and Twitter, they don't care that much one way or the other. What they want is your attention, whether it's things you're angry about or things that you're you're happy about. And these companies study our relationship to both quite carefully. And um, that's also well documented in terms of the emotional contagion study that they did in 2014 or, you know, a number of other things that uh, experiments that they've done with timeline algorithms and so forth. Um, but that is what the algorithm of the timeline and the whole practice of continually scrolling and you know liking and all of that kind of stuff is is, is intended to garner and it's it's it's, it's really important that we un unpick that and, and criticize that i would also love to ask you about what does this conflation of content and journalism mean in this context in theory journalism is part of the the the, the antidote to ignorance right of the more and supposedly at least in the ideal sense the more we are learning about what's happening in our world and, and what you know um, experts might be saying about it and all the rest of it in theory the more empowered we are to survive in that world and to be able to challenge uh, the conditions of our oppression and 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 you know to be able to make things better for others as well so 
um, I think when you start to conflate journalism and content and you start and this attention driven model starts to drive us towards, you know, um, 21 zany pictures of goats on cliffs or, or whatever, um, then then that civic engagement and, and that uh, literacy and that ability to challenge your own oppression and that of others starts to be eroded. Um, and, you know, if that happens for one year, it's a problem. If it happens for 20 years, it's a, it's a, it's a huge problem. And um, meanwhile, you know, there's, there's a hundred other things that you can be looking at um, that, that don't give you that civic engagement, but can at least keep, keep your boredom at bay and, and, and keep you from remembering, um, you know, how alienated or oppressed or, or belittled um, you otherwise feel. I mean, I've been quite interested, especially since the kind of various shelter in place and, and lockdown restrictions that have been, you know, we've been subject to uh, in the past year. I've, I've, like many people, joined TikTok to have a look at what is happening there. Because, you know, as a digital media researcher, I feel I have a legitimate, it's research kind of excuse <laughs> to, to do so. And, um, you know, actually, it's interesting because in the beginning it was, you know, maybe eight, ten months ago, it was all dance routines and, and you know, nothing very exciting. And now there's a number of people who are, who are starting to try to conflate content and journalism, but in a much more sensible way, or at least content and public knowledge. Um, people, you know, with, with kind of advanced training in some field or another who are trying to explain to us according to some, for instance, a historical definition of fascism, why Trump was a fascist, you know, in his, in his presidency um, or whatever. And other kind of quite useful things there as well. I mean, obviously, uh, because there's, there's a, there might be a conflation of journalism and content in a bad way in lots of other places, in the sense that the two things are occupying the same timeline. And we tend to, a bit like with food, we'll always go for the junk food rather than the healthy food. So then we, you know, we move away from the things that the healthy food will give us. But there's also a way we can kind of mix those things back together in a way that will start leading to a more informed and, and um, an empowered population again. I do think there's some possibility there. That's a very techno-optimistic approach. Interesting, because I, I can't consider myself as a real techno-pessimist, uh, generally speaking. And, Which is um, what I'd gotten after reading your books. But you also yeah. have this this hope I think um, it's what Gramsci said. It's the pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will. If we don't have some answer, some possibility in the future, then, you know, we're, we're really, we should just shut the whole internet down, you know? Uh, there's got to be some way that we can at least start chipping away at the, at the kind of, um, you know, some of the structures that, that um, are producing, producing these problems. What I appreciate about appreciate about your work, Marcus and Chris, is that you you complicate you complicate these relationships and these products in ways that don't say this is good and this is bad. But what you also do, and this is what I want to talk about a little bit, is point out where the harm is. Right. So maybe it's not all bad and there are good things, but the reality is is that what we're talking about in terms of content attention. Um, power, concentration, information has very real, tangible, material, harmful effects. Chris, can you talk about that a little bit, please? Yeah, I, you know, I should first say that uh, I I think that much of what these companies do um, should be illegal. Um, that there are no 
uh, significant uh, federal privacy laws that that make some of the business models, the extraction of data. Are you talking uh, you specifically know, the, about social media platforms? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Ex- exactly. Um, that there's there's very little that prevents them from doing uh, many of the things that that lead to harms, and and specifically uh, what I'm uh, kind of referring to is the constant uh, extraction of people's data um, to the extent that uh, we are in um, in ways that I think most people don't um, really are don't fully understand um uh, we're followed around and the data about us is uh taken um from the moment we wake up i mean actually even when we're asleep <laughs> in a lot of cases till the moment we go to bed and one of the ways that i think this produces tremendous harms and, and marcus had alluded to this is um the ways in which uh companies are able to use that targeting to deny people uh, certain opportunities. You know, I, I often refer to this as, as digital redlining. Um, and, there, and there have been numerous documented cases in which, say, uh, Facebook, um, you know, one of the, the noted uh, ProPublica story about how Facebook was uh, allow, would allow people to show, um, say, a, an ad for an apartment or something like that, or jobs. And, and say which groups would see that and which uh, groups would not. And so, for instance, you could conceivably um, post an ad for housing and say, I don't want any Black folks to see this. Um, and so, and, and part of the um, specific harm with that, too, is that, again, the uh, average user, and I, I don't really like that term, um, but the average person who uses Facebook has no means of knowing that the, that this is happening to them. So not only are they being harmed, but they're being harmed in very uh, kinds of insidious and invisible ways. Uh, and so the uh, another side of the coin in that sort of being able to target people and speak to their um, insecurities or their hatreds uh, and recruit people the other side of the coin is being able to deny people opportunities in a lot of different ways. And I've seen, and I think a lot of people have seen since March, how essential it is to have uh, a certain kind of internet access, right? I, I, I've long argued that it might be considered a public utility along the lines of importance like water and, and electricity. And people often scoffed at that. Uh, but I think the last year has shown us that that um, is probably closer to true than not. Right? There are lots of ways in which uh, the kind of education you get, uh, the kind of job you can have, the kind of medical treatment you can get are all tied to your internet access and even to what kind of information, um, what kind of information comes to you and what kind of information you have to pay for and what kind of information is free. Like all of these things are so very closely tied to uh, what kind of life you can live. And to the extent that uh, Facebook, Twitter, Google, Instagram, uh, you know, TikTok, as we, as we move forward, to the extent that they have these data practices uh, that very much look at 
people as as resources in the most kind of extractive way we might use that term uh, before that you made a, a point about the kind of extractive relationship to human beings that i think that, that you thought um, social media companies have and i again i think this is a hugely important point um the sort of there's there's something of there's something about the way that a particular kind of um I think Wendy Brown would call it a table of value, but the, the way in which neoliberalism narrows down the question of value and what is valuable and what is not. So that the things that can be extracted from a person, um, whether it's, it's their attention or something else, that can then be traded as a commodity become extremely important to Facebook and, and, and um, Twitter and so forth. But the other things about them, for instance, the you know, negative effects on their mental health or on the public spheres in which they participate or um, on their education, for example, because of the distractions that are, that are posed by these platforms are all either collateral or externalities or they're just things that are not factored in. Um, and I think, you know, this is a, an interesting, uh, it's a big problem, but it's an interesting issue because on some level, I feel that particularly Facebook, have embraced over the years a business model that is kind of centered on that um, choice of different things to value or not, as the case may be. And um, in a way, I suppose I've, I've used the work of the historian Peter Leinbaugh to try to think about this as a form of enclosure, to look at the way that the countryside and the commons were enclosed um, in prior centuries, um, and even in the 20th century, and, and uh, to see the ways that social media companies have kind of slowly built a wall around some of what happens in journalism. They've slowly built a wall around some of what happens in our overall kind of political discourse and debate as far as, you know, the various public spheres that we participate in. Slowly built a wall around our kind of interactions with our family over distance or etc. And put themselves in the middle of all of those relationships and all of those kinds of uh, spheres of conduct. And and that, you know, there, there's just something incredibly harmful about the, the extractive relationship that it's a sort of parasitic relationship that they then de um, develop. Um, the harms are not for them, but for us, insofar as all of the things we've been talking about so far, um, you know, and not, not least what happens to journalism. Um, and as long as we fail to address that, the same cycle will keep coming round and around again, that the harms will always be ours and we will kind of rightly kind of raise an objection. And Facebook, um, you know, Mark Zuckerberg will always be able to say, well, uh, you know, we're looking at this and, you know, we're sorry and all the rest of it. But then because the underlying problem in the business model is never really changed, it's never really settled, we just come back to a point where we're outraged again at their invasions of privacy or their, you know, um, just overall contempt for for their own for their own users. And and I think, you know, when I set out to write my first book, Filling the Void, I, I wrote a book that I my goal was that if everyone reads this, Facebook is done tomorrow. Um, but unfortunately, you know, that's not the way books work and that's not the way you know discourse works. But I I do hope for um, all users of social media platforms to have kind of, I mean, 
I guess we could say more literacy about this and about what these companies really represent. I think that part of dealing with it is also naming it and being very specific about who the human beings who are being harmed are, who are the ones that profit. When, when Chris, you talk about digital redlining, you are talking about black, marginalized black communities in the United States. People don't get harmed equally, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the uh, sort of um, maxims of, of privacy and surveillance work is that most of the, many of the harms, although they may eventually come down on everyone, uh, they are that the harms are deployed against marginalized people uh, the earliest and in the most oppressive ways. These companies have a massive investment in hiding what they do. Um, in um, so, even for instance, if we think about uh, what Sarah Roberts calls uh, commercial content moderation. So the extent to which, uh, you know, even um, so there's so much hate that gets through, but that there are people who, who sit in rooms and actually uh, for hours at a time uh, sort through terrible, terrible uh, things, images and video uh, to make the to make Facebook and YouTube uh, somewhat palatable right to 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 remove some of the hate and also um the the work that journalists have done to some to to some extent to be the custodians of platforms to say hey we found this on here when you didn't or when your algorithm didn't um we you said that you got rid of um stop the steel groups you said you you got rid of militias and and we found uh, we found them still on your platforms. And so I think it's so very hard for the average person who is not an expert in these areas uh, just to know uh, how they're being, um, how they're being harmed um, because so much investment is made by these companies in, um, in occluding the, that, that fact. You know, for the last for the last portion of this conversation, I do want to kind of shift to a more, I mean, dare I say, optimistic approach to all of this. But I want to go back to two points that each of you made and ask you, Chris, first, you had mentioned shifts that you would like to see in the ways at which information circulates online. What are those shifts? Oh, wow. You know, well, one of the things I'd really love to see uh, is um, specifically at in, in the intersection of technology and journalism is a greater discussion of the privacy and surveillance harms of, of technologies. So to give you an example, uh, you know, one of the things I, I've, if people have heard of me, one of the things they know is that I'm a vocal opponent of the Ring Doorbell and their partnerships with police departments. Uh, and so right. uh, I'd, I'd be really interested and I'd really love to see a more cynical and critical eye when journalists are reviewing technology products to talk about uh, some of the implications of having a, 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 a building a web of surveillance and in an associated platform and something like neighbors that 
essentially turns everybody into cops and snitches or or um in some ways functions as this gentrifying agent where people are allowed to report on uh, oftentimes what turns out to be black and brown people doing very mundane activities but this is a shift i would i would love to see overall you know a move away from the the glowing review of all things tech or or even the um accepting the the proposed narrative of of tech companies as as the essential or main narrative. Marcus, you also mentioned earlier on about how digital journalism could have evolved differently. What what ideas or thoughts have you had around the ways in which digital journalism um, could move back away from being content or product and back to what journalism is supposed to be about? Well, I, I guess um, two things, actually. Um, so one is that, I mean, I've had the experience of teaching journalism in two different institutions. Um, and in the first one, journalism was in with the kind of, in, in with the professions. It was in with nursing and accounting and um, those kinds of things, which it's not a problem. I have great respect, particularly for nurses. Um, but um, I felt that in that setting, one of the things that we lacked uh, was an exposure to kind of to creativity. Um, whereas in the institution where I now work, um, we are on the arts campus. We're isolated from everyone else at the university for the most part, but we're, we're in with all of the screen printing students and the fashion students and the painting students. And I feel that that's on some level very important um, because, you know, one of the things that's often been overlooked in the kind of technological script is that um, making digital media well should be like making art well and i think that i mean i i readily accept that it's more expensive to make it this way um but given that generally as a sector journalism is massively overproducing um because there's lots of kind of throwaway news articles that are all the same on every website um actually we could we would do better in a way to use our resources to produce a more interactive and more creative digital journalism that that kind of thinks about that tension around our attention and thinks about the kind of responsibilities that are incumbent on journalists to help people understand the world better and that tries to combine that with you know interactivity creativity you know even some affective considerations like color and and, and so forth um and layout and you know there's so much bad design still in journalism i kind of can't help but feel like if you want to make a product that people are willing to to pay for and engage with and, and learn from, then you have to make it as 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 kind of well-designed and beautiful as possible at, at a base level. And I think that actually technologies um, can be developed to make that faster and easier for journalists than it currently is. At the moment, it's quite expensive to do that, um, but it can still be done. It was so interesting to me that when the Snowfall um, feature was published, on the New York Times some years ago, um, it was a sort of a huge thing. Journalism classrooms, everyone was looking at Snowfall, even if it was basically a non-story as far as actual journalism. But just the way that it was put together and the kind of animation and all of this kind of stuff, everybody was kind of blown away by it. Well, that was years ago now. Why haven't why hasn't there been more of that? Why hasn't BBC News started to do that on a regular basis? Why don't they have a big a desk 
of people employed just to do that, especially given the, the way that they're subsidized. Um, I, I think it comes down to um, to priority in the end, right? We're still kind of, you know, in a capitalist world, everything is going to be driven by an economic of money, first and foremost, including journalism, sadly. And although it prides itself from being in some ways outside of that, in terms of it has its own ethics and its own priorities, I think all too often that doesn't actually, that isn't realized. And um, so we need to sort of remember our value lies in a different quadrant than simply profit and loss. Um, and, and that creativity and engagement and, and um, you know, making something that's appealing to people is, um, is equally important or in fact, more important. I've been thinking a lot about my own time in journalism school as I've been teaching um, critical engagements and responses to journalism and its futures. And the two things that end up coming up over and over and over again in these classroom discussions are notions of objectivity when it relates to um, data and race. You know, how do we how do we establish or determine objectivity and what does it even mean? Um, which is, I think, the discussion that journalism schools have been having since the dawn of time. But the other is about the ways in which journalism education needs to shift and move, um, not just in, in terms of what the students are taught, but including who the students are, who the faculty is, what kind of, um, what kind of landscape or marketplace are they moving into? How do they not only survive, but also live up to the ethics of a profession that they're taught from the very beginning, journalism is in service to the public. How do you teach that to students who are going, or how do you teach that to journalists? I mean, the journalism industry ideally would make these changes by itself, but more realistically, it's going to end up being individual journalists who do those, like who push for that shift. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, there's been some tremendous work in just in the last few years. So I don't want to be all gloom and doom. I've been also really impressed, uh, really uh, spurred on by the willingness of, uh, of journalists to talk a lot more, not only to people who are sort of perceived experts in a field, but also to the communities uh, that these uh, decisions affect. Um, and for a long time, I, you know, not to say that it didn't exist, but, uh, you know, so again, I mean, we, we used Facebook as, as an example quite a bit, but so for example, if you want to talk about, uh, how someone is, how powerful people have been affected by being banned on Facebook, I think it's important to also talk to, um, uh, people who are far less powerful who have been banned on platforms with often little or no recourse for as long as these platforms have existed. You know, I mean, there's a lot of talk about Facebook jail and what that means if you're, uh, if you're, uh, if you run a small business, for instance, or if you are some kind of community activist. And I've seen uh, a lot more uh, willingness on the part of journalists to, to have that discussion with people who um, typically wouldn't have been seen as, as experts, but who are very much affected by these things in ways that I think bring important perspective. I'd like to thank both of you. You're, I think, with and through both of your work quite a bit and use it with my students. And so I really appreciate this opportunity to put both of you in conversation with each other. 
Yes, so, yeah. I very much appreciate that. And and uh, so it's been a pleasure speaking with you, Chris.